place called Calvary, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Be still and know that I am God. That's what the psalmist proclaims for us this morning, that we would be still and know who is God, who is our Lord. Things uh, change a little bit around this season. What we've been doing so far um, in the past, since the summer, let's say, um, is that uh, we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes and we heard from, from Kohelet, the teacher, about what life is like under the sun. And then we switched the sermon series to the book of Jonah, in which we sort of caught this image of, of what does it mean um, for Jonah to be in the belly, to pray out to God, to recollect God's faithfulness so that he is rescued. And then the next sermon series was on the domestic monastery. And, and to say that, that Jonah in, in the book is Israel, and Israel finds itself swallowed up. So too the church finds itself swallowed up. Not just today, but in all times and places. And what were the practices that made for life there? And those are three or two at least different, very different kinds of, of sermons. One is that Ecclesiastes where we can just read the text, and, and preparation for me looks like if I don't know what to say, I can just read more. Um, in the second one, uh, that, that one in which we um, uh, tried to ask what are the practices which might help us live through exile, it's I, we pull together 
threads from a variety of different resources and understandings and texts within the Bible to bring an answer to a question. So it's not like there's just one text that we just sort of cycle through that, that we sort of do that. But what happens a couple times throughout the church year is we shift um, again, which is happening this Sunday, to sort of these prescribed readings that come through the lectionary. So all three readings, and there's four traditionally in the lectionary, or there are four in the lectionary. We do two of them, although during Advent we do four. Um, they bring forth these readings for us to then sort of be around a theme, to be around a question. So when we look at Psalm 46, um, you could preach on Psalm 46 the way that we went through Ecclesiastes. We could hear that psalm and go through all of its meaning and its context and then ask what it says to us today. But what happens as we go through these readings in Advent, or on today, which is the last Sunday of the church year, Happy New Year, um, uh, that's why everybody's gone. It's, it's, they're just, New Year's went too late for them, their parties were there, and then they were unable to rise this morning to make it to church. Um, uh, it's the last Sunday in the, in the church year today, which is the reign of Christ Sunday. So when we look at Psalm 46, we're not looking at it just as what does it say in its early context, or what it might say to us today, but we bring another object of meaning alongside of it, which is to say, we are gathered today with the reign of Christ on our mind. Each one of these texts then takes a different meaning. Most notably what David read, that from the crucifixion, when you read that in Lent, or when you read it any other time, it begins to ask this question of what does this moment mean in the gospel story? What's going on with these characters and these places? But the church in its wisdom, when it's read today, we ask, what does this teach us about the reign of the one who is to come? If this reign is about this king and this kingdom, and that scene is an example of that reign, what does it say and teach to us with that context gathered to it? And this is, I, um, I talk this way because I think it's helpful for us when we read scripture to ask what type of questions are we coming to it with? What type of places are we coming to it with? For instance, um, uh, the psalm we read uh, at the funeral for Lisa is, is one in which it has its own meaning, it has an, uh, its own um, Place, but when we read there, different questions arise with it. One whose face is set on God never has shame. It's a powerful way to hear that today, but you wouldn't hear that every time. You would hear something else. This, I think, is helpful for us to ask when we read Scripture in our own lives how we live through those things. Where am I at? What questions am I asking? And sometimes are we allowing ourselves to be directed by something larger than us, that the questions that we would always want to ask aren't always there. I wouldn't have picked Christ the King Sunday for this Sunday. Um, it's probably a theme if you were like, Matt, come up with 52 themes to guide the church through the year. I'd be like, ah, 
forgot that one. And yet it's such an important one because it says in the fullness of all that we're doing, what are we waiting for? Like if we're directed towards something, if this is where we're waiting that day till Christ returns and this, that, and the other, and we have no Sunday for it, uh, you're going to have an impoverished imagination of what you're waiting for. Or perhaps worse, you only have the book of Revelation for it, which leads you to projecting all sorts of things into the book of Revelation that may not have been there. It's a phrase uh, that I just love um, my professor, who was a good psychologist, uh, um, said that the Left Behind series is theological pornography, which I just uh, makes me laugh every time I think of it. Um, and which isn't to say that the, if you've read them, that there's nothing good there, but it's a lot of projection into it. If you're reading it as, hey, two guys having fun with the text, probably a good reading. If you're reading it as like, this is factual representation of what's going to happen to our world, that's probably not the best reading strategy for those books. Um, needless to say, actually, the second reason why I bring that up is because same professor said that's how we draw meaning from our lives. If you just talk about what happened, linearly, you don't make any meaning. But you put two events together, and for, simple, for simplicity's sake, put two together in your mind now, um, from whatever might have happened in your life, both good or bad, and you can think about what meaning might come from that, what meaning might, might be told out of that. For instance, I, one of my friends who's a pastor, he says, Matt, stop asking if I've read. Um, uh, if I say, have you read this book, blah, 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 and he says, you, I know you, don't mean it as an object of shame that I haven't read this book. But to lots of other people, you just sound like a jerk. Um, uh, and, and reflecting on, on that advice from him um, led me into thinking, and, and Emily and Kevin and I talked about it this week, about um, uh, growing up with a, a smarter twin brother, but also having what they call an IEP today, this, that, and the other. Is part of my assumption is I just assume everybody's smarter than I am. Like my have you read is I don't want to assume um, that you didn't go that. So you put together a, a, a note from a friend, stop asking that question, it makes people feel dumb, and you connect it with an aspect of your story, you can begin to draw meaning from these things that wasn't there before. Point being is we do that with scripture, we do that with our lives, and I think um, it's often a good uh, therapeutic, not going to a psychologist, but a good um, medication for our souls to begin to do that well. Um, because we can begin to make ourselves more developed through understanding ourselves that way, in the same way we can make scripture more developed through walking through it that way. And so this Sunday, three readings I didn't pick, with a theme that admittedly I think is very important, but I might have forgotten if you had said, set up the liturgical calendar yourself, Matt. Um, but the reason why this image, again, is because we are awaiting a day in which we are not in the belly of the beast. We are awaiting a day in which Christ's reign comes in its fullness. That dominion and kingdom that we witness to in a world that doesn't share it with us now, someday may be here in its fullness. 
So if we just did that one series looking at Jeremiah 29 and said that's where we are always, well, one, you might ask, who would sign up for that religion? Um, but secondarily is, is that we're in that spot of waiting, of building homes, of planting gardens, of being in that way, because we expect the reign of the one to come in its fullness someday. We expect the completion of this story. And so that's part of the theme for today. Um, this, this then launches us into Advent. Now, if this is your first year here, this is a circular way of understanding the church calendar. <clears throat> on the inside, you have our months. Well, on the inside, you have the story of Jesus, which takes up half of the year, the story of the people of God, which takes up the other half. Uh, the story of Jesus starts this year next Sunday. Advent 1 is next Sunday, so um, not always in December. And that will take us, uh, so Advent on the far outside um, we have Advent and anticipation. Um, that leads to the season of Christmas. One of my favorite parts about Advent is the world has Christmas and the church has Christmas. Ours is after the world is done um, and, and, uh, and bloated and overworked and tired and debt-ridden. We have 12 days after that in which we get to sing the songs ourselves. I know I often make this joke, but it's, it's, is it harder to sing Christmas songs after Christmas, or is it harder to sing Advent songs before Christmas and hold off on the Christmas songs? You feel dislocated either way. You're, you're holding back that joy before, and then you get to January 1st this year as a Christmas Sunday. We're going to be singing Christmas songs, and the rest of the world's like, it's Rose Bowl Day. Um, bowl season is upon us, and then, you know, the world just moves, has its... Somebody should do one of these, and if Kim Vanderveer were her, she'd start doing it in the middle of the sermon. Uh, one of these for the secular calendar of like there's Super Bowl, and then there's spring break season leading into summer season. Um, Baseball is only popular for a week, and then we get this. Um, anyways, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost is this time in which we sort of walk into the story of Jesus. At Defiance Church, we try to do one gospel every year. This which it sets us a little apart from the lectionary because the lectionary does not give the gospel of John its own year. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke make years A, B, and C. Um, there is no year D. So we, this year, will be most off of sort of having prescribed readings because we give a full year to the gospel of John. Um, and then it comes around to Pentecost, and then we have this ordinary time, which we sort of divide in halves for the last couple of years. One half spent um, in an esoteric book of the Old Testament, um, and then the other half spent uh, from our fall kickoff forward in some sort of equipping uh, thing for the church. And so that's sort of how the church year is divided, and this is sort of how we sort of practice time here at Defiance Church as well. Slightly modified, but, but in the same pattern of sort of living through this in this way. And so today, like I said, brings us to that, and it's not on here, which is odd. They did a good job with this graphic, but today we just don't end the church year and go, let's go back to anticipation. We end in fullness. Like, if this story is going to capture all of what's in the Bible, if the calendar is trying to capture that, um, and these people follow this, but they just miss this, is the last Sunday 
is its fullness. And it's interesting because last Sunday we talked about death, which is the opposite of its fullness. And this Sunday we step in to its fullness. We try to walk into this time and to consider the ways in which this might shift our perceptions. I think this is a deep challenge for the church. Um, we see the world so much as it is, um, but we don't often see it as much as it should be. We don't see it as much as it should be. So, and this would shift, I think, our, let's, just to take one topic, I think it would shift our looking at justice in two different ways. One is, it, justice being the one topic, is that if we look at justice from the fullness of what's to be, then our work for justice now is meant to be aimed towards an end in fullness. The church, like the world, often does its justice work just to make the world a little bit better. But the church, if it looks at it wisely from what God has given it, it looks at it as amending the world's ways so that it will be more in line with what it's supposed to be someday. It's not just a little bit more just today. It's trying to say if at the end people won't have lack of clean water, then today to amend the world some might be bringing people in, uh, building wells, so that they too have clean water today. Knowing that the fullness is never achieved by our work on this side, but we can continue in our witnessing, in our work, to try and bring forth that world. But the second thing I think it corrects is that it's we who don't bring that world. We can plant seeds, we can um, work for forgiveness, we can do these things, but at the end, if we have that proper lens too, we know that the world comes in its fullness in another day. I think that keeps us from some of the abuses that we might do if tomorrow is our only lens. If my only hope for a just society is to see it in my lifetime, you might use tools you wouldn't use if you knew that their only hope in a just society is the return of the one who saved us. Then you'd know that you have more time than you think you have. You have more help than you think you have. And you have someone else who's going to do that work in its fullness. I think it's part of the challenge of that. But anyways, we have these three readings for ourselves this morning. The Psalm 46, the telling from Luke's Gospel, and the book of Colossians. I'm going to start with Colossians because I think it's a, an important teaching for us to have today. Um, in that reading that Jude read for us, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, and we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thinking about this on reign of Christ Sunday. Thinking about this as, as this sort of kingdom Sunday. Our relationship to where we are is that we've been rescued from the darkness that is here. 
We've been rescued from darkness, and, and that means we've been placed into light in some ways. Not through anything of our own, but through this image of this one who, who is Jesus that Paul is sort of singing a hymn to here. We've been brought into this kingdom of the Son whom he loves, the Son of God. That Christians are therefore those who belong to a different dominion. We belong to a different time. Or, in baptism, we belong to a different space. We've been grafted into a different kingdom, a different polis, a different um, community of such. What Paul says for us through this is that we are a people who have been brought out of this into something else. <clears throat> and if you follow Paul's logic, it's not for the loss of what was there. We don't leave the world to just say goodbye. But we're brought into this place so that we can be God's full people for it in the way that his son was when he was here. Or a witness to that. It's the way we place it here. And in this kingdom, we have forgiveness. We'll talk about forgiveness a little bit more in that next scene from, from the cross in which David talks about. But that it's worth noting that this is where the forgiveness resides. There was a time when forgiveness was a strong virtue. To forgive was something admirable and difficult. It was, to, it was to lay down arms in some way. It was uh, the Bema discussion at, at um, Rachel and Zane's house. He talks about it in, in the ways in which it stops the cycle. It ends those things. One of my favorite stories is the story of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. after bombs go off on his porch one night when his, his kids are at home, and he goes out and proclaims forgiveness. It's not the way we think of forgiveness today, I don't think. If you see people forgiven today, it, it happened recently um, a, a, between a, a young black man and a police officer at a court case in a wrongful death suit. And, and the, the young man was forgiving this cop for what had happened with his brother. And there were people saying, he can't do that yet. Because justice hasn't been enacted. I'm like, but this Kind of the point of forgiveness is it comes when justice hasn't been enacted. Like there was, there was a, a rise up to say that he was naive, to say that he was wrong, that he was incorrect. And I think for Christians, it might be wise for us to say, by the, by the standards of the dominion we exist in, everybody is right. But the virtue of forgiveness that comes from another world He's not standing in line with this world. King Jr. definitely was not standing in line with this world. Standing in line with another time and place. The second half of what Jude wrote, the all occurs ten times in nine verses. Um, and this is a, a joke from uh, Rob Bell. He, he used to always talk about, like he'd say, you know, in the Greek it means this, in the Greek it means this. And he would say, you know, what, do you know what all things means in the Greek? All things. <laughs> like, there was no mystery to it. That God's actual goal in saying all over and over again is that all is in Christ. 
For him, all things were created in heaven on earth. All things have been created through him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. For he is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, through whom to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, things by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. God's work is bringing forgiveness and reconciliation to in what in the Greek means all things. Brings us to what David read for us this morning in Luke's gospel. Um, This, uh, I can't remember who made this comment first, but they joked, this is the first Christian community. Two criminals, which, sorry, it's what we are if, if we get the message of what God is doing for us, gathered at the cross. Those gathered on his right and on his left. Those, and, and, and today, looking at this not as what is all this that's happening in Luke's gospel at this point, but what does this mean as a statement of the kingdom? If, and, and the gospels have this way of making the cross sort of the enshrinement of Jesus, it's his kingdom coming in a weird way. What the king says first in this scene is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The king speaks forgiveness first. Forgiveness because we do not know what we do. Each of the groups here is mocking in their own ways. The people stood watching, the rulers sneer at him. One of my favorite identities of what Jesus seems to be is the one who saves others but doesn't save himself is in this scene. That our king is one who is content to save others, not save himself. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's a sign which mocks him from the government. This is the king of the Jews, which was put there for the mocking purpose. And the criminals mock him too and hurl insults. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and not being lost and us. There's a lot in the and us phrase there. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are being justly punished for what we are getting, what our diseases deserve. He doesn't know entirely about forgiveness yet. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. I finally found this quote. I've said it often um, in some probably not accurate form because memory doesn't work that way. There's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the idea of forgiveness. If you mess up in today's world, constant atonement will be demanded of you and yet we don't have the mechanism of forgiveness for release. Constant atonement, constant making amends. And we see this made small in conflict between people, and we see it made large in our political process. We are constantly demanding that you do something to make amends for what you've done wrong. 
And when will we say it's been enough? Never. Never will the release come. The best maybe you can do is get back to zero. But we'll always remember. Forgiveness never comes there. So the king speaks of forgiveness, but the second thing is that um, uh, that wonderful passage to d- that the second criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I like that he asks for memory. He doesn't ask for today. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Proclaims that goodness there. And so this kingdom has the way in which it shows up in a form in which we wouldn't expect. Enshrinement on a cross, an instrument of shame, an instrument meant um, to, to shut down, um, an instrument meant to, to sort of alienate. And yet here is this king. And the one person who seems to get it is a criminal. Somebody who is guilty themselves. And what they see, what he sees, I think, is, is interesting. He sees innocence, and he asks for remembrance. He sees the innocence of the one next to him. He has done nothing wrong. And he asks to be remembered by the one who is suffering wrongly. That a kingdom comes with that. Here, if we look at this in the fullness of time that we await, that what this Sunday is kind of about, the reign of Christ Sunday, We see that first forgiveness is offered. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And second, that we are promised to be in the kingdom. If we see the innocence of the one who is next to us, the criminal doesn't really do anything. He just asks for memory when the kingdom comes. Truly, today you'll be with me in paradise. Psalm 46 um, is the last one to talk about today. I was at a pastor's meeting this week. Um, it's as fun as it sounds. Um, isn't it, Lauren? It's just, it's always a great time. Um, and one of them was trying to ask us about uh, prophecy in Psalm, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.1. What does it mean to desire prophecy and how do we get all this? And this, that, and the other. And it seemed to be coming out of a space of sort of like worry and anxiety and this, that, and the other. And I said, look, I don't have a lot of prophecies. I didn't mean to say Bob. I won't say his name. Um, I said, look, fellow pastor, um, I don't have a lot of prophecy within me, but my prophecy for the church today is God does not intend for us to live anxiously. God does not intend for us to worry about the state of our own salvation. God provides the gifts. God works these things out in Jesus Christ, but God does not intend for us to to always be anxious. In fact, maybe the good news, the prophecy today that we can announce for people is that God is a God who frees you from your anxiety, doesn't bring you into a different game. You are anxious about this, 
now you've become a Christian, we give you new things to be anxious about. That's not the game we're playing. This is a place that's meant to be freed from anxiety. This is what Psalm 46, I think, captures well as we read it today. Is that first, nature exists in this disorder, in this way of sort of trying to threaten and to take over. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake and they're surging, yet there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. That in the midst of, of what looks like a world falling apart in the natural sphere, God's city is being fed by a river. And it won't fall, not because of anything the people who reside there do, but because of who God is. It's not our place to secure the future that God has. It's God's. And that should be anxiety-freeing news. The second, the nations are in an uproar, kingdoms fall the earth melts. This one, we don't worry about nature as much anymore. We think we've tamed it, although we find oftentimes we haven't. Um, pray for the people in Buffalo, New York. Um, uh, we still haven't conquered it, but we try to live lives like we have often. But politics we still worry about. The nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. And yet this phrase comes... The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The God we worship is our fortress and is with us. This comes up again at the end of the psalm. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the sphere. He burns the shields with fire. We think it's our work to always be doing, and what the psalmist proclaims for us is that God is the one who is going to bring this reign and bring this kingdom, and it is not our work that does it. I still think we have a place in witnessing to it and being brought from one kingdom to another as living the people who can offer forgiveness, as being a witness to that full day. But it is not ours to bring. Verse 10 is the famous line, that be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What is our job in this work of breaking all these weapons and of taming nature? Be still and know that I am God. Kingdom Sunday could be a Sunday to say, let's get busy. The world doesn't look as it should be. That is deeply true. But it also can be a time to say, let us be still and know who God is. The Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This psalm is broken up weirdly on the back of the bulletin in two different ways. 
Um, one way in which it ends with be, and the other way in which it ends with the be still and know that I am God. I think there's wisdom in knowing which ones to use accurately in, in that way, is that you, know, you, you, you can move and pull away into which God calls us just to be. I think if you just use that one all the time, it becomes this invitation to narcissism and towards emptiness and towards um, thinking that your own meditation is really what it's all about. So the second one, I think, is a, a, youthful, uh, a helpful amends to also know what to do. We go from just being to the full sentence. But we are still because we know who God is. It's to use those two representations accurately, I think, helps us navigate the world in which we know where we are sometimes. Sometimes we need to pull it all away and be with God. Sometimes that's failed so much, and all we see around is our own mess, our own reflection in our thoughts, our own disorder, that we need to go back up the ladder and know the one who is God. Before we end in prayer, um, these, these two things are available for us today. One is small, one is big. They are the same. Obviously, the bigger one has bigger print. Um, they're for the older people. Uh, sorry, Derek. Derek's a month older than me, so I can make that joke about him. Um, uh, I get this one, being a month younger, Derek. Um, but uh, uh, these are both instructions for daily prayer. Um, one of the reasons I like them is because they have a simple way of doing morning and evening prayer together that expands, I think, our prayer lives a little bit. And then you can fit your own devotional practice reading of the Bible within it. Um, it has a spot for your own Bible reading. Um, but on the second to last page is this um, way to pray through the Psalms in a month. Um, it doesn't take long. It has them for morning and evening. Um, but I think it's an invitation to spend the next year, which for the church year starts next Sunday, in prayer again, of reading psalms like this, of learning how to be still. Because that's part of the kingdom we await. We await that God is going to bring this thing in its fullness in the end. In prayer, while to the world looking like the most useless thing, is the place where we are learning in that, we're being fed through that, where we are being invited into and transformed to be the people of that day. So these are available in the back, um, small and large. But let us pray. <clears throat> God, we are a people who pray for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Today we've considered what does it mean from the end of your story. That your reconciliation will come here and be for all people. That the words you speak in truly, that we would be forgiven, for we don't know what we do may resound throughout the earth. That those with ears to hear might look and say, this one had done nothing wrong. 
and ask for memory in the day of your full kingdom on earth. God, bring us into being your people who see the work that are you are doing. And to be a people who can be still. Know that you are the Holy One God.